Our psalm this morning is found in Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart, in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They're established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. All men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Colossians chapter 1, as we continue to follow the prayers of the Apostle Paul for the churches, and as we look at those prayers, we're discerning what it is to be spiritually mature, what is it that God is at work in our lives to accomplish and to do. So Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14. And so from the day we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we give thanks and we rejoice that you are a speaking God who reveals himself to us and that you have given us everything in your word to direct us to you. And Lord, we look to you this morning to fill us with the knowledge of your will. We ask that you would speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. In her widely acclaimed novel, Faith, Jennifer High chronicles the turmoil and trials of a Boston Irish Catholic family. Her observations about the family's approach to God are shrewd and insightful as she covers the range from superstitious to just non-responsive. And reflecting on her mother's own spiritual walk, the daughter comments as the narrator, and she says this, only after remarrying, did mom become so fiercely virtuous? Like her cleaning and her counting, her strictness quells a terrible fear inside her. God would spare her another catastrophe if she were very, very good, if she did everything right. 
And friends, this is the unfortunate approach that many people take when it comes to hearing a phrase of a life fully pleasing to God. This is what Paul has just said in Colossians 1. He's praying for the church to have a life fully pleasing to God. And for many of us, what we think is that a life fully pleasing to God is about being strict and ordered and keeping life under control. And that as we do that, God will no longer come after us. And this is what it means to have a life pleasing to God. We live at some guilty distance from him. And then others just simply respond to this idea and say it's preposterous. That I know I can't have a life pleasing to God. I know how tainted my motivations and actions are. I know the complicity of my thoughts in a sinful way. And so it simply doesn't matter at all and I want nothing to do with it. And so this phrase, a life pleasing to God, is vexing. And it's crucial for us in the journey of the Christian life to actually understand what does it mean? What does it look like to have a life pleasing to God? Is it supposed to be something that fills us with fear and guilt and shame? Or is it something else? And so the main question for us, the burden that we need to answer this morning, are what what does a life pleasing to God entail? And what we find in the Apostle Paul's prayer in Colossians 1 is something different than what we would expect. We see that it's not about guilt and fear at all but rather that a life pleasing to God is grounded in the grace of God. And there's three particular parts of it that we need to look at and uh, take more detail, uh, glance into. But the first of these that we find is that a life that's fully pleasing to God, in that life there's dependence on the Spirit's ongoing activity. Follow with me in verse 9. As Paul begins his prayer, he says, And so from the day we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, there's one important grammatical thing to point out. When I was in the sixth grade, my English teacher was a lady named Mrs. Cox, and I found it particularly horrific that Mrs. Cox lived in my neighborhood. It gave her way much, too too much access to my parents. And I've forgotten many things that Ms. Cox taught me, but the one thing I do remember was the difference between the active voice verbs and the passive voice verbs. In the active voice verbs, the subject is doing the acting. In the passive voice verbs, the subject is being acted on. And friends, it's important to point out that the apostle uses a passive voice verb here when he speaks of being filled. And so this is not something that we do. It doesn't involve us that it involves grace from God, that God is the one who acts on us. He is praying that God would fill us, that God would continue to fill us, that God would enter into a dynamic activity, and that our spiritual lives and our spiritual vitality hangs in this dependence and this, this type of humility, where God is doing something on our behalf. And then we must look as to what we are to be filled with, And Paul makes it very clear that we're to be filled with the knowledge of his will. Now, the knowledge of God's will is a rather tricky topic in the Bible. Because as with many words, they're capable of a range of meanings. And you can look across the Bible and find three main meanings for what it is to have the knowledge of God's will. 
If you looked in James 4, you'd find that James says, well, you shouldn't say we're going to go do such and such and make a lot of money doing such and such tomorrow. He says, no, what you should say is we will do this and we will do that tomorrow if God wills. And so the meaning there is about God's plan for us, his individual plan for our days, where he knows the number of hairs upon our head and he also knows the events that lie before us. And this is a good and important meaning of God's will, but I don't think it's what Paul has in mind here. Now there's a second way that we can understand the phrase, the will of God, and you find one like this in 1 Thessalonians 5. If you looked in verses 16 through 18, you would discover it there where Paul says we are to give thanks in all circumstances. And then he says, for this is the will of God. And so when someone asks you, I want to know the will of God for my life, you can simply turn to that verse and say, give thanks in all circumstances. But what the will of God here is, is what God's moral desire for you is, what conduct he wants from you. And then there's a third and final way that the Bible speaks of the will of God. And I believe it's what Paul has in mind here in Colossians 1. You find it also in Ephesians chapter 1. And if you have your Bible open, just simply turn there. We're looking in verses 8 through 10 of chapter 1. He's celebrating the grace of God that's come through the blood of Jesus Christ. And then in, chat, in verse 8, he says, Which he, that's God, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. So God has made known the mystery of his will, and then he's going to explain what that will is. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Now, that the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians, these two letters, these epistles were written about the same time is very informative. Because here, when Paul speaks about the will of God, what he's addressing is God's great plan in Jesus to unite all things in heaven and on earth through his atoning blood. That in the death and resurrection, this is the plan of God, the mysterious will that was hidden for ages. But now it is this open secret. It's been made known to the nations. This is the will of God to make all things right, to reconcile human beings to himself, to make heaven and earth once again, united places, not torn apart by sin. And so when Paul prays that we would be filled with the knowledge of the will of God, essentially what he is asking is that God would vitalize us and revitalize us in the knowledge of the gospel. He goes on to further this a bit more, the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And this could be translated several different ways as well, but it's the wisdom and understanding of the Spirit, that this comes from God. And so, friends, the work of the Spirit here that must fill us is to give us the knowledge of the gospel. This is simply what Paul's praying for, that we have the knowledge of what God is doing in the world and what he has accomplished in Jesus on our behalf, and that we know the implications of that for the world to come that we be marinated in that, that we be soaked and drenched, and that we understand it. And please note that Paul prays that that would continue to happen for these Christians in Colossae. And we pray that it continues to happen for us, that God would fill us with this knowledge. Now, why is it necessary for it to continue? 
And there's two strong reasons that we have to consider. The first is that we have a tendency to add to and to then abridge the gospel. This was what was happening in the Colossian church, is that they had grown somewhat tired of the preaching about Jesus, and they had begun to adopt some human traditions that Paul speaks of in chapter 2. And these human traditions were things that they were adding on to the gospel. They were adding on things like, hey, don't taste that, don't touch that, don't handle that, and you'll be righteous. And they said that these things were secrets and mysteries, and they were for people who wanted to go deeper. And so they were adding things onto the gospel in order to have maturity and acceptance in front of God. And Paul is here contending, and what he goes on to say in verses 20 through 23 is that these human traditions have the appearance of wisdom, but they're nothing. In fact, they're deceiving you, that you have everything you need in front of God because of Jesus. And so he calls them back to the center and core of our message, what we preach and proclaim, that in him is all wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And we must be continually filled with that. That's what we must saturate our hearts and our minds in. Because all of us tend to add to the gospel. We think there's something else that we need. We chase after novelty. When the main thing must remain the main thing for us, And the main thing is the knowledge of the will of God, that which has been revealed as to how God is fixing a broken and busted creation and how God is reconciling himself to us, what he has done on our behalf to bring us back into relationship with him. But the second reason that we need this continuous filling is that we also tend to grow complacent with the gospel. That is, we become somewhat tired of it. Now, when I was in my second year of seminary at uh, Reform Theological, I had a particular professor who left a deep imprint on all the students that he taught. And so we had him during our first year, but not so much during our second year. But I had a break in classes, and even though the class was three hours, I would often go to Dr. Richard Pratt's class just for an hour to sit in and review. Because I had learned so much, but then I realized I had missed so much. And so one day after sitting in for an hour, I then had to leave to go to my next class, uh, which I had to take for credit. And as I walked out, I dropped into the bookstore, and there was a first-year student who I knew and was friends with. And I asked him, I said, Keith, why aren't you in Richard's class? Aren't you taking that course? And he said, yeah. I said, well, why aren't you there? He's covering some of the best material of the whole year. And when his answer to me, he goes, well, you know, I went to Covenant College, and I know all that. I've got it down. And friends, this attitude is is striking, not just because it showed up in a seminary student where you will find it uh, readily available, but it's one that marks the church as well, is that we tend to think of knowledge just simply in terms of subjects and that we can master these doctrines and know them. But that's not the knowledge that Paul is speaking of here. Certainly, it involves doctrines and understanding. But it's not just knowing subjects, it's know-how as well. Because what you see, as he explains this further, that when we are filled with the spiritual wisdom and understanding, we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And so this isn't just a formal intellectual knowledge. It's a knowledge that transforms us. And so it's not simply memorizing 
the shorter catechism and having the doctrines nailed down, as good of a thing as that is to do, but it's being able to translate that into a life of godliness. And friends, what Paul is contending is that we have to be continually filled by the Spirit of God for that interaction to be taking place where doctrine is being translated into life, where it's not just knowledge but know-how. It's not just facts, but it's also function of how we live and how these things are worked out. And he's pointing to a cycle where there is this filling activity of the Spirit, and that comes to bearing fruit. And then you'll notice that we go back to an increasing knowledge. That this is the cycle we all live inside of. And a life fully pleasing to God is dependent upon the Spirit to work all of this out. And we don't want to add to or bridge the gospel. And we definitely don't want to become complacent with it and treat it like it's old hat. We want to ever be captivated by it. All that God is doing in the world and all the implications that it has for our lives. And so don't get bored with it and don't add to it. This is what it means to have a life fully pleasing to God, is to be dependent, that it continue to sustain you. Now, the second piece of this life fully pleasing to God is that there is reliance on the Spirit for strength. If you follow with me in verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Now, in the mid-1980s, a Presbyterian pastor named Eugene Peterson, he was pastoring a congregation much like this one. He was an author and a writer. And the problem was is that he didn't have a publisher. And so he wrote an entire manuscript, and he entitled that manuscript, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And in the mid-1980s, what you had to do was find a publisher then for your manuscript with your title. And so he shopped the manuscript at multiple different publishing houses. They all told him that his subject matter, which was perseverance, was not interesting, and it wouldn't sell. And that furthermore, his title stunk, and no one would ever get it. And so they said it was irrelevant, and it wouldn't work. Interesting thing is, is that Peterson finally did find kind of a publisher for his book, and that book has stayed in print all across these 30 years. It still sells at a pretty good rate in the Christian marketplace. And this book about a long obedience in the same direction, the constant kind of drone of the Christian life and the challenges that faces and how the grace of God meets us in the middle of that, that Peterson, despite what the publishing house has said, was actually tapping into something incredibly important, something that Christians felt the need for, something that Christians need answered. And friends, this is what the Apostle Paul is praying here. That we would be strengthened by the Spirit for the long road that lies in front of us. That we endure with patience and we do so with joy. Because when we look at the Christian life and we consider the trials that we encounter, when we consider the temptations that we face, When we consider the disappointments that we endure year over year, when we consider the unanswered questions that we have, those things that just baffle us about God and his ways in the world, and when we consider the discomfort that we encounter because of our values and beliefs, and when we're shunned by others on the outside, 
and they're disinterested in us because of our Christian faith, when you add all of that up, which is the normal experience of the Christian, there is incredible pressure. And friends, you will feel every bit of your weakness. And what we need is strength from God. That it's not about you being fit and strong enough to do this. But it's rather living in that dependence and that humility once again where God fills us with strength and that we rely upon different powers and different resources. We have a different source of strength. And that's the way that we truly endure. And he even prays that we endure it with joy. And friends, this is what a life pleasing to God looks like. It's not one that thinks it has the power and capacity to do it on its own but rather to endure by the strength that God provides. Now, the final piece of this, of a life fully pleasing to God that Paul lays out here in Colossians 1, is that there is thanksgiving in the Spirit for what has been accomplished in Christ. You'll notice in verses 12 through 14 where he ends, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, in a particular fashion, Paul drives his point home as to why we give thanks to God. He uses three verbs, qualified, delivered, and transferred. And you'll note that they're all in the past tense. Because what's being proclaimed very loudly and emphatically by Paul is that we have nothing to do with that qualification. We have nothing to do with that deliverance. We have nothing to do with that transfer. But rather, we have been qualified by Jesus. We have been transferred by Jesus. We have been delivered by Jesus. And because it is a gift that comes to us from outside of us, something that God has done on our behalf, that there can be thanksgiving. If we're living as if a life fully pleasing to God is one that we have to work out on our own by things that we do for God and somehow we're going to gain his favor, there will never be thanksgiving. You will always be anxious and depressed and concerned. You will oscillate back and forth from pride and boasting to despair and despondency. But when we know that the Christian life is grounded in the fact that we are qualified by Jesus, by his sacrifice on our behalf, that he, the righteous one, gave himself for us, and that we are now considered righteous in front of God because he stood in our place. And we know that we've been transferred into that kingdom. That is the fount. That is the spring of joy and thanksgiving. And a life fully pleasing to God involves that thanksgiving course some people note that when attending services at Christ Church there is a continuous drone of repetition that we do the same things week over week and as we do so we do it with intention and purpose because actually we're trying to highlight the things that the gospel says and the scriptures reveal are the most important for us keeping the main thing the main thing and you'll note that every week we have a call to confession And we give space and time for you to do business with God, where you ask him to search you and make known to you sins that you can confess. And then we say a corporate prayer of confession. And then we hear words of assurance that God would forgive us. And friends, there's a dynamic that then takes place after those words of assurance. We stand and we sing in order to give thanks to God. 
And so we're not singing about creation and how wonderful and beautiful it is at that point. We're singing about the death and resurrection of Jesus and how good God is to deliver us, that he has qualified us. Because we are disqualified manifestly. But in Jesus, he's done something on our behalf. And friends, that is the fount of thanksgiving. That's where it all springs from. And that's why we go through that cycle again and again and again. Because this is part of a life fully pleasing to God. To give thanks to him. To be empowered by him to endure. To be filled with the knowledge of his will. His great plan in Jesus. To save. To reconcile us. To bring heaven and earth back together as one in a new world. In the consummation of all things. That's a life fully pleasing to God. Don't get lost with the cheap definitions. Don't get lost in the works mentality. Have a life fully pleasing to God that's bound up in his grace and all that he gives to you in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, it is a life pleasing to you that we desire to offer. A life full of thanksgiving, a life that calls upon you for strength, a life that calls upon you that you fill us with the knowledge of your great plan in Jesus. And so sustain us, and may we endure with patience and great joy, and may we be filled with gladness over what has been done on our behalf that we can never do for ourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.